Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, where each episode explores how to integrate timeless wisdom into everyday life. We engage in meaningful conversations with leading thinkers in philosophy, leadership, theology, and everything in between. We leave no stone unturned in search of wisdom. To learn more, visit us at perennialleader.com. Greetings, everyone. I am Joshua. I thank you for listening. In today's episode, my guest is Dr. Stephanie Johnson, the author of Inclusify, The Power of Uniqueness and Belonging to Build Innovative Teams. This is a great book. I think you will enjoy the conversation. We discuss what it means to inclusify, why it's important, how to lead in a way that recognizes and celebrates unique and dissenting perspectives, unconscious bias, and much more. I hope you enjoy this episode with the wise and gracious Dr. Stephanie Johnson. Dr. Stephanie Johnson, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to have a conversation with you here today. You're the author of the new book, Inclusify, The Power of Uniqueness and Belonging to Build Innovative Teams. Congratulations on the book. Seems to be doing very well, and I'm excited for the conversation today. Before we get into the book, would you mind sharing a bit of your background? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I guess when I'm not book authoring, I am a professor at the University of Colorado in Boulder at the Lee School of Business, where I teach management and leadership and conduct research on, I call it the intersection of leadership and diversity. So kind of maybe in some ways, the ways we view leaders from different backgrounds and the unique challenges and opportunities for those leaders, but also how can any leader, regardless of your demographic background, create more diverse and inclusive cultures? All right. Love that. Thank you. To begin the discussion, I thought maybe I could read the definition, which I thought was beautiful that you provide of of Inclusify, and then kind of get your thoughts around research and experience that helped shape that definition. And it, it goes to live and lead in a way that recognizes and celebrates unique and dissenting perspectives while creating a collaborative and open minded environment where everyone feels they truly belong. It's beautiful. Thank you. It's kind of a mouthful when I hear it read out loud. (laughs) (laughs) Would you mind providing a bit of kind of an overview of of maybe research experience that that kind of helped shape that before we get into some of the specific details? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's obviously a lot in there. One thing I was really trying to convey with the idea of Inclusify is that it's really about these two most basic and essential human needs uniqueness and belonging. So it's not just creating an environment where people can fit in, but it's creating an environment where people can be a part of the team while still being their full authentic self. Someone made the parallel of being like the difference between being on a team and being a part of a team. And Inclusify is really talking about letting everyone be a part of the team and actually allowing that team to grow and change based on the membership of the team. But then there's obviously more packed in there. There's a lot of what we call like performative diversity going on, like leaders who, you know, maybe they espouse really positive values about diversity and inclusion, but they don't really do anything about it. So I was also trying to signal the fact that 
This requires action. Like you have to do something. That's why I didn't just say include, because I think, you know, I included you. I let you, you included me. You let me be on the show, right? But whether you really allow me or encourage me to be my authentic self on the show, then, you know, that might be more of inclusifying as I define it. But then the other thing in there is the first few words is to live and lead. So, you know, I think if you're really passionate about diversity and inclusion, it's not just setting HR policies in the office and then going home and not engaging at all around this idea of social justice and equity. I think if if you really care about it, you're going to be doing it at work and you're going to be doing it at home. And that's not as common as you would think, right? Like lots of leaders right now, especially in the last few months, as the Black Lives Matter movement really picked up with the murder of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and so many others, a lot of people are saying things, but you know, maybe they are or aren't doing too much at work. Maybe they're donating some money, but they have an all white male board or, and then I think you can really tell if someone cares about it based on what they're doing in their personal life too. And I feel like right now, if you're not doing anything to support equity, I think that actually says a lot because I think it's, this is a, hopefully a movement, right? Not just a moment where I feel like most people are really working to create change to make the world a better place. You provide really a a lot of statistics kind of in the, in the beginning of the book and paint the picture of, of kind of where we're at today. I would love to touch on that a bit, but you also spend a ton of time and provide a lot of practical kind of, as you just kind of stated, of action, of really kind of embodying these things. And before we get into some of that, could you kind of speak to a bit of the statistics around where we're at kind of currently? Oh my gosh, I love statistics. So (laughs) if I had my way, the book would just be like all statistics, but it doesn't really help people do anything. But the statistics are surprising. I think right now in the Fortune 500, oh man, it actually has increased, but maybe it's about 7% women CEOs. I say in the book, there's more CEOs named John and David in the S&P 1500 than all women CEOs. And I actually don't think that's true. I track this, (laughs) the name, like the names and genders and stuff of CEOs and corporate board members which probably 20% of corporate board members and like Fortune 500 are women. Most boards now have somewhere between one and two women. There's still some with zero. A lot of boards that have zero African-American board members or any board members of color, like that's it, pretty surprising. Not that the board and the C-suite are all that matters. I think the rest of it matters too. Like, do you have diversity throughout the organization? But I think those are pretty good indicators of the reality of what's going on. Like, it's not that hard for, I'll say women to get a job coming out of school. You know, we know women are graduating at equal, if not higher rates than men, and they get great initial job offers. And then something happens along the way where before hitting the executive level, we lose the vast majority of 
women? Like, where do they go? And so that keeps that number of women at the top very small. And, you know, it's just the numbers are far worse when it comes to racial equity, because in that case, it's not just, you know, there's obviously a lot of bias that goes on just, you know, as there is gender bias. But there's also those like structural inequities and you know, we call structural racism, economic disparities. That mean people of color are not graduating at the same rate as whites. I don't know if you can tell this from our video, but I'm Mexican-American. And I, I remember when I finished my PhD, I won this fellowship called the Ford Fellowship. And it's specifically for, for PhD students of color. You don't have to be of color, but like that's kind of the intent behind it. And I remember going to this conference and like, granted, this is very, very long time ago, but and someone gave quoted the statistic of like there were four Mexican-American PhD students who graduated that year in the United States. I was wow. like, is that even possible? It's we're talking infinitesimal numbers. And it's much better when you if you just look at graduation rates from colleges, but it's still not. I mean, this the inequity is huge. Not that everyone needs to go to college, but to not have the opportunity to go to college is really stacking the deck in a way that it becomes very difficult to create greater equity in society. Yeah, thank you for providing some context around that. It's definitely uh, alarming statistics when you when you look at it and kind of transitioning to this inclusifying many, many benefits behind it. Could you kind of speak to some of the some of the benefits just from like kind of a business case, which granted you say it's a bit more of not just a business case of reaching people's hearts, which I'd, I'd love to get into in the conversation. But could you speak to the business case kind of around it? Yeah, there's lots of data on both the business case for diversity and then the business case for inclusion. So I'll start with diversity and you know, this has probably been, the data have really been emerging since around 2016. I think McKinsey did a big study around that time and the Pew Institute, like a lot of different organizations, you know, whether they're private or public sector, showing that greater diversity just is positively related to bottom line outcomes. So you could say return on assets, you could say stock prices, having more women on your corporate board will make you less likely to have to restate your earnings, like all of these positive outcomes. I'll say like maybe as an aside, as a, you know, like kind of a science nerd, like these studies are really not causal in any way. It's not like we're randomly assigning companies to hire two women to their board and then looking at how that affects their change in revenue. Like, it, you know, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of noise and that the companies that have more diverse boards may have other things going on that are that's driving that revenue change. But for all of the things that we see in those large scale corporate studies, we have corresponding data from laboratory studies where we do exactly that. We change the composition of groups, create diverse groups, homogenous groups, and then look at performance. And you know, all of those studies show the same thing, that when you have greater diversity, and I'll use a very diverse view on diversity, like it could be race, we often talk about gender, could be sexual orientation, ability, veteran status, like there's many, many different groups that bring different perspectives. And if you 
put folks together with different backgrounds, you tend to get better decision-making outcomes. Some of that is that we function differently. Like, okay, so obviously there's information that you have as a former military that I don't know anything about, that I may not have that perspective. But on top of that, the fact that I know that we might have some differences changes the way that I communicate with you versus if I'm talking to another business professor, I'm going to use more, you know, maybe more jargon. I actually don't prepare as well because I assume they're going to know the same information that I know. I don't look for holes in my arguments, all of that stuff. And then one of my kind of favorite reasons is this concept called the wisdom of the crowd. And it's Mm -hmm. a mathematical formula that shows that you could bring together a diverse group of novices and every time, well, most of the time, they will outperform a very homogenous group of experts. And the explanation for this is, you know, we all make decision-making errors. We all make errors. Just doesn't matter if you're diverse or homogenous, everyone's going to make errors. But the trick is ensuring that people in the group making decisions aren't making the same errors. Because if I make an error and that's the same error that you're making, you won't see it as an error. But when you have diversity, I'm still going to make errors, but your error will be very different from mine. And so you mm-hmm. can catch my error. And so you don't go down that kind of group think conformity, bad decision-making path. Okay. So all of that is just diversity. Then the next part is really inclusion. I think that's where Inclusify started is, you know, by I think 2016 companies were starting to really catch on this diversity, bottom line benefits and companies I worked with were doing this and they started to have higher turnover and maybe conflict and, you know, other things that they're like, this isn't really what we signed up for. You know, you promised us all these great outcomes. And and that's really where the inclusion part comes in. So diversity isn't going to have the same effect if people don't feel empowered to share their different views. If I know you're making an error, but I'm too scared to tell you because, you know, maybe they were not in a psychologically safe environment or I've been spoken over in the past or told not to speak up. That it was the point of having the diverse perspective. And for those individuals who are silenced, they just want to leave, right? Like they don't, why would they want to stay in that organization? Everyone wants to I think everyone wants to really have an impact. That's like the motivation for why we want to work in organizations. I don't really think many people just work to live. You know, I think most people, I think, want to contribute to something that's important. And so that's why the turnover. So then the inclusion benefits come. And now there's, you know, studies showing these benefits like Deloitte, a study by Deloitte showed that inclusive teams outperform less inclusive teams by eight to one. So eight times better performance. And I think it's like harnessing that power of diversity by ensuring that people actually share and make those better decisions. Thank you for that. Some additional research that you kind of cite in there around the social exclusion, I find fascinating. I, I believe I read it in the book Social by Matthew Lieberman, where it kind of talks about the same areas of the brain lighting up as physical pain as it is to that kind of exclusion. Could you kind of speak to that a bit? Yeah. So this really relates to those two most basic and essential human needs, uniqueness and belonging. So obviously I want to be myself. I don't feel like faking covering every day. 
And I still want to be able to like belong and be accepted. And I think any of us can think of a time where we didn't feel like we belonged or we felt excluded and it feels bad, right? Like, I don't know. Have you ever experienced, have you ever been excluded in your life? Yes, I think so. And when I think of it, I think of much smaller things, even if it's something as, as simple as whether it's a small task or a meeting or lunch type of things. I'm curious in your research, are they kind of some of the small things that people remember and kind of communicate? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's all across the board. I think not everyone's exclusion experiences are the same. Like some people are more excluded based on personal differences, but I think everyone has that same feeling. The studies that you're referring to are like brain scan, fMRI, CAT scan, PET scan studies where they really look at the parts of the brain that light up when you're feeling that exclusion. You know, if it's in junior high, you weren't picked for the team or in the organization, no one invited you to lunch or, you know, like (laughs) any of those things cause that same area that indicates physical pain to light up. It's like, it's a very, when people say it hurts, it really does hurt, you know, like your body's reacting like this is pain. I think human beings are wired to want to connect. Like that is our like adaptive advantage. That's why we live in societies and no one wants to be that person who's left out of the group. I don't know if it always makes as much sense for, I guess not everyone has had that experience to the same extent. It doesn't mean because you happen to be maybe a white male, I don't want to label your race and gender, but if I just were going to guess, you know, maybe you have had it in different ways or many of the leaders I talked about. So I interviewed a bunch of CEOs for the book. So not surprisingly, based on the data I shared a few couple minutes ago, there are a lot of white men. And these were a lot of white men who were really passionate about diversity. And a lot of them talked about taking an expat assignment. And so now they're working in Singapore and that feeling of, it's basically the same thing. It's exclusion. It's like people mocking you because you're different or you're not involved in the conversations, depending on what country you're in. Maybe you don't speak the language and, you know, you're just like, you're different. Like people don't just naturally accept American expats, right? It's not always the case. And so for a lot of those folks, that's how it finally clicked for them that they're like, wow, it's pretty sweet being the majority group all the time when you're, you don't actually have to think about it all the time, but having that experience or, you know, is I think it's easy for to generalize and say like, oh, well, you know, as a white male, you haven't had those experiences, but like, give me a break. I don't know you. You could have like, there's many other reasons that people face social exclusion, whether it's ability or sexual orientation or class earnings. Like there's lots and lots of ways that people experience that. But the goal of organizations should be to try to minimize those as much as possible. So when you go to work, you're getting the most value out of people because you're creating an environment where everyone can really thrive and contribute. And you you write something in the book, which really resonates with me, that most leaders want to achieve these outcomes. They want group members to feel engaged, supported, and included. Why is this so challenging? Yeah. I mean, that was like the happy surprise from doing the research is I actually, the last few months have been really 
hard for me, but let's just say before the last few months and doing the research for the book, I was very optimistic because I feel like most people, most leaders really want to do this. Of course, they want to hear different perspectives. Of course, they want to learn and have the best outcomes and the best decisions. And even the idea of diversity, like I think so many of us really want to be equitable and fair. And there's very few people, I think, who want to say, yeah, I just hate all other races and genders. And in the last few months, I don't know, like I've had a little, I'm not sure if if the worst in people has really come to view for me, but I'll say in writing the book, that was like one of the biggest things I took away. It's like, people really want to do this. Why then don't they do it? Because it's not natural, right? Like that's, so we talk about belonging or being accepted as like a basic human need, but you know, so is grouping and having Mm -hmm. in-group and out-group. And that's a very natural thing to do. The more, if you and I are similar, we'll gravitate toward each other and not with the goal of excluding others, but with the goal of creating this in-group. And so there's things that we do all the time that you were like, obviously not aware of. We just do it naturally. Like I do it, you know, if I, I have two other women who work in my office, who are in my department, I have to be honest when I see them, if I ever see them again, I haven't seen them since March, but in person, I am slightly more excited to see them. I'm like, how's your daughter? Or just like other parents, you know, you relate to them. And so this is normal, but it becomes problematic when the majority of people who are holding power in organizations are one group who like each other, just like all the rest of us like our own group. And that comes at the cost of inclusion and equity for the rest of people who aren't in that group. I love how you explained unconscious bias throughout the book. I really felt it was explained in a very gentle way and and really kind of made sense in terms of these paired associations in your mind. And you provide a a lot of examples that that really, I think, resonate with with people. You cite in the book, A Blind Spot, great book, which states unconscious bias, state of being unaware how deeply our past experiences color our newly formed impressions. In your research and experience, what are some ways to maybe loosen the grip and become more aware of these? Uh, It's so hard. I think being open to feedback and learning about yourself, I think is super beneficial. I think the research would really say the contact hypothesis. It's like, if you just knew people who had different experiences, you would Mm. become more aware. But because of the fact that we tend to group with people who are similar, we don't become aware. So I, I think like finding ways to really form connections with people who are different from you and understand their lived experiences can start to bring some of that to light. I said being open to feedback because I mean, that was the other thing. So I I was very optimistic because so many leaders really were trying to do a good job at this. But the hiccup there was the fact that so many of those leaders thought they were doing a good job at this. And then their subordinates, because in some of the research studies I did, I would interview teams. I'd interview the boss and then let's say three of their direct reports. And all the leaders that 
really want to do this. And some of them said, I really want to do it, but I don't know what I'm doing. And others said, I, I'm really killing this. I am just like doing a great job at this. And then their direct reports would be like, they are horrible. <laughs> and I think that's because they're just like a lack of self-awareness. Mm-hmm. And again, we all have this, right? Like direct reports are not thrilled about telling you the things that you're bad at because you're the person who evaluates them. Your boss may not see it. It's like a hard thing to tell someone, right? So if you can create opportunities to ask, like, how do I come across or what are some basic things? Or just like do some internet research to learn, like, what are the, so let's say microaggressions. Maybe I'm like a typical microaggressor. Doing a little research to figure out what that even means and which ones you do. Like, I I have this horrible, I think it's because I'm from California, but I don't know. I'm going to blame it on California. But I always say, like, hi, guys. Hey, guys. To everyone. Like, on, I'll be in a text message group with all women. And I'll be like, hey, guys, how was your New Year's? And they'll respond like, we are not guys. And it's, mm-hmm. like, I need that feedback, right, to know that I'm even doing it. Or I could have just looked at, like, what are ways that we inadvertently microaggress? And one of them is using gendered language like that. And then you can make the effort to stop doing it. I appreciate that. When you think of these kind of paired associations, what are some common examples that you think kind of resonate with people? I think if you think of a surgeon, most people think of a man. If you think of a nurse, most people think of a woman. And I like that example because many surgeons and nurses report being mistaken for the opposite. If you're a male nurse, people mistake you for a doctor. And if you're a female doctor, people often mistake you for a nurse. And that, so we have, having the paired association, I think it's normal. I think statistically it's true. Nurses are primarily female. And I think it's true. Surgeons are primarily male. But when the problem isn't the paired association, that's actually natural. It's the application of it. So when you ask your female doctor who spent very long time earning that title and you say hey nurse can you get me a doctor like those sort of things cut away at people and become really exhausting you know there's tons of them I have I talk about rock stars my rock star unconscious bias or prototype is like Mick Jagger who was your rock star I don't know if anybody really really popped up. Not Mick Jagger, not a long haired rock star, nobody in particular. Maybe I'm not a big music person. <laughs> yeah. Some people say Pink. She has that song, Rockstar, but yeah, most people actually have the Steven Tyler, Mick Jagger, just like the term Rockstar. Or if you think of a basketball player, you know, I, I talk about this in the book, like most people think of an African-American male. And again, it's like true that most basketball players are African-American men and African-American men are like overly represented on in the NBA. Like if you think African-American men are like 13% of the U S population and like 74% of the NBA. So it makes sense that we have those kinds of persons, but it's just when we allow them to impact our behavior in a way that makes people feel less than not included, like they don't belong that, I think that's when we need to step in and like try to control, control our natural tendencies. Any particular practices or like self-reflection questions that you find to be helpful for someone to notice these associations that we're 
just unconsciously kind of connecting. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting. There's like a lot of people use the IAT, which is the implicit associations test is a project that came out of Harvard. Uh, It's called Project Implicit. If you Google it, there's these tests that show you the reaction time tests and they show you a picture and you hit A if you think good and B if you think bad. And like, basically you'll see for most people, you tend to associate your group with good. But there was this study that came out more recently that said, you don't even really have to do that. You can probably just think about it. Like I always think of this, like I'll ask people, tell me about the last time you went to dinner with a group of all Muslim people. Mm-hmm. And it's assuming this is a white person who's not Muslim. They're like, I never have. And then ask them like, well, how do you think that would feel? And most people are like pretty self-aware. They're like, you know, that could be hard. And I don't even know why. Like, it, I may not even know. I could have been at dinner with a group of all Buddhists before, but not known it. But like, when you think about it, like how would it feel to be the only white person at a table of all Asian Americans or all black Americans, how would you feel? I think people get it. They're like, oh yeah, that is weird. And I've had people, (laughs) I teach this class, it's called women in business and it's anyone can take the class. Right. And I had a male, a man, two men sign up one year. One of them didn't come on the first day of class. And so the other one was by himself in this room, like a sea of women. And he told me after class, he was going to like, he's going to drop the class. And Mm. the reason is because it's so weird to be the only guy, like think about being the only man in a room with 20 women and a female professor. And then this woman in the room says, I'm the only woman in my econ class. And a woman was like, I take quantitative finance. I'm the only woman. It's like a sea of men and the professor's man. And the guy who's like super sweet, nothing against him. He's like a champion for women's equality but he's like no that's different it's like Mm. no it's not it's like totally exactly the same (laughs) i mean it feels weird for any of us and so it's i think making that you could just think about it but i feel like people are so caught up in trying to identify the mistakes that you know i'm not totally sure that it's helping them like make improvements i think rather than focusing on like i have so many flaws and rather than focusing on all the things I'm doing wrong, what if instead we just focused on some things we could do more right and make those small positive changes? Because when I think for a long time about all the stuff that I'm doing wrong, it kind of makes me exhausted and I don't really want to do anything. So maybe the real solution is just think about like, just like we do, it's New Year's, right? Set a goal. Like I want to have a phone call with someone in my office who's different than me or who I haven't had a chance to get to know and make it one-on-one and ask them really how they're doing to tell you about their experiences. You can practice empathy. You can share about yourself. Like, I just feel like that is maybe a better stance than dwelling on the like, oh my God, what if we went with a table of Mexican people? How would I feel then? You know, like, I just like, we could do this all day. And I don't know if it really helps anyone. I love that. I appreciate you you sharing. You talk about this general path to becoming an inclusifier, which I really enjoyed. And, and we've kind of touched on that first part of the unconscious bias, being aware of it, and then kind of moving to a conscious bias, conscious inclusifying. 
and unconscious inclusifying. Do you have any kind of examples that maybe come to mind around that general path? Or could you kind of speak to that a bit? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this is the reality for a lot of people that this has become like more of a topic of conversation. Like, let's be honest, no one was having this podcast in the 90s, right? And even in the early 2000s, like no one, it just wasn't a thing. And so I think a lot of like everyone, 100% of people have unconscious bias, but because we want to be good people, we refuse to admit it. Like, no, it's not me. And then you're definitely stuck. You're never going to be able to change your behavior if you think you're not doing anything. There's nothing you could do better, right? So if you become aware of your unconscious bias, like, you know, maybe it's just thinking about what it would feel like to work in an office if you're a woman with all men or vice versa. Now, all of a sudden you're like, okay, I do have unconscious bias. Like, you know, I might mistake my nurse for the surgeon or the other way around. So then now you kind of have conscious bias, right? But that doesn't seem that great. Like I have bias and I'm aware of it. And so then the next step is, is kind of what I talked about that proactive, like let's be positive and pick a few behaviors. Like maybe I think there's like 150 examples in Inclusify. Just pick something and do it. And that's conscious. I call it conscious inclusifying. It's like you're actually going out of your way to schedule a call, pick up the line or cell phone, whatever, and talk to someone, get to know them. And maybe you have to put it on your calendar or whatever it is. But the beauty of it, like it might be hard and it, you don't have a lot of time right now. It's like a crazy world. But the beauty of it is as you do that, it really starts to become unconscious and then you're just doing it naturally. And so you're back in the state of not having to be constantly thinking about all the things you need to be better. But instead, I think you just become more open to different perspectives and more open to feedback about the things that you can continue to improve. And so it just becomes like, I call it unconscious inclusifying. You also kind of lay out three lessons or kind of foundational points. And it's been a great conversation that's flying by. So we're getting a bit short on time, but I wanted to touch on that lesson one, the playing field is not level. I thought you provided a beautiful example kind of when you received the question of what were your tailwinds? Could you kind of speak to that, that lesson one a bit? Yeah, absolutely. Now that those lessons are totally outdated, I think we need Black Lives Matter and pandemic and all those kind of things. But they're like, I think, ideas that will help frame the diversity and inclusion conversation for everyone. And one of them is that the playing field is not level, right? Like anyone who believes that we all have an equal chance of success is kidding themselves. And it's not all just people who've been, who've grown up with lots of privilege. Like there's lots of people who grew up with nothing and became successful and, you know, therefore believe that anyone can be successful. And while it might be true that there's Oprah and people who really do overcome difficult odds, for the most part, we see this is not true, right? Like the best predictor of your earnings as an adult is your parents' earnings. Think about that. Yeah. You know, they're kind of like, it just says a lot. Like a lot of it is just like the luck of the draw and the environment that you were born into. And that is going to shape a lot of things. Like, do you have to work 
to pay for college? Can you afford college? Which, you know, even applying for colleges is expensive. Going to college is expensive. I still, this is very sad. I have been out of college for over 20 years and I still have college loans. <laughs> my, uh, my partner asked, if Biden forgives college loans, do you think he'll forgive yours? <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. Mine may have be too long. I don't know if I'm still eligible, but <laughs> it's a huge economic disparity that creates yeah. that unlevel, unequal playing field. And I think the story you mentioned is part of my point in that is if anyone looked at the data, no person could refute the fact that there's economic disparities and that people who are born into more wealth are going to be more successful. But I think instead, the way we interpret that statement is your success, Joshua, was not earned. You're here because you're a white male who grew up. I don't know how you grew up, but, and I see this in other people. And the sad story is that I was doing a diversity and inclusion talk for this organization. I was a liquor company, Brown Foreman, and their chief diversity officer, while I'm like, do my talk and I have people ask questions. I'm like, any questions? He asked me about my, the word he uses privilege in the book. I talk about headwinds and tailwinds as a way of things that push you, might push you ahead. And then things that might hold you back or make success more challenging headwinds and tailwinds. So he asked me what were my tailwinds? <laughs> and I was like super offended, even though <laughs> I like, obviously shouldn't be, no one should be offended. If you can't acknowledge your own headwinds and tailwinds, then, you know, how are you supposed to relate and understand other people? So I started off, my initial thought was like, I said, I am Mexican American. I grew up single mom, like on welfare in East LA. I had to pay for everything. I'm a woman in a field of mostly men and person of color and very, very, white sector of higher education. And, and so when he asked me the question, that's all I could think of was like, well, let me list all the reasons that I don't have privilege, but luckily saving grace is that as I turned beet red standing there, <laughs> it occurred to me like, there's lots and lots of things that I have had that's privileged. Like, and you know, I can list those off too. It's like very, mm -hmm. many, but I think it's like, you have to, do the work, I guess, to acknowledge, maybe start with the headwinds. So you can acknowledge like, this doesn't mean you only are here because of your tailwinds. We all had to compete with the hand that we were dealt. It doesn't mean you're not worthy and you know, didn't work extra hard and not a great person. But it's like, if you can't admit the fact that there's differences in people's ability to attain success that I think is just a lot harder to really have that empathy and understanding for why there's inequities. Because if you don't think there's any difference, then people who don't have as much, they earn that, right? You didn't go to college, like you earned that. And, and it's not always the case. It's like a lot easier to go to college when your parents went to college. Like my parents didn't go to college. And when I was applying for colleges, like they had no idea what I was, how to do it or that it required money. They didn't save any money for me to go to college. It's just like a different situation than someone who had my kids. Like, let's be honest, I have two little kiddos and both my husband and I are college professors. Those kids, they probably will understand how to apply to college, right? So that'll be one of their tailwinds. 
No, I greatly appreciate you sharing and something people could do in a few minutes to think about those categories where we're privileged and and marginalized. To kind of wrap it up, I want to respect your time. One kind of final question around something that you write in the book, which I briefly kind of touched on in the beginning of it's more than just kind of making a business case and kind of about reaching people's hearts. A bit on this podcast, we kind of talk about some timeless virtues and kind of trying to bring timeless wisdom for modern life. And an Aristotle quote kind of, I think, connects with this, educating the mind without educating the heart is no education at all. If you were to kind of think in terms of the individual that's really trying to open their heart to this, what might be just one step in the right direction? Yeah, I think consider someone you know, or your child or partner, and maybe some of the things, some of the headwinds that they might face. And if you can, I think we're actually pretty good at perspective taking or having empathy for people we like deeply love. Mm. (laughs) And if you think about them and why this is important for them, I think it helps. Like I'll say when Me Too really started in 2017. For a lot of people, it was like a very big wake-up call, just like Black Lives Matter. And I remember my husband hearing all these statistics and saying, like, is this true? Like, I'm like, yes, you realize I study this topic, right? And he's like, yeah, but does this mean that our daughter will probably face some kind of, you know, sexual or sex-based harassment in the workplace? And I was like, yeah, absolutely, 100%. (laughs) And he's like, well, we've got to do something. Like, this is not okay, right? And I think it's kind of true for everyone. If if it's someone you knew, like if you hear about an injustice on the radio or on the TV or like statistics about sexual harassment, let's just say, it's kind of sterile, right? But if you think about someone you know experiencing that, whether they did or not, just like imagine it, I think it, really sinks in with people and like, let it roll around in your head for a day. Think about it before you go to sleep. Think about it in the morning and think about like, if someone could have done something to stop that from happening to that person, don't you wish they would have? And maybe take that as the key motivating step to start making, maybe it's a new year's resolution to do something, just anything to start your journey to be an inclusive buyer. I love that. And that feels like a great spot to wrap up the conversation. This has been a great one. Where can people go to learn more about your work? I have a website, drstephjohnson.com and inclusifybook.com. If you want to know more about the book or more about my research, there's lots of free downloads and activities and a quiz to take to see if you're an inclusifier and everything is free, I guess, except the book. You have to buy it on, (laughs) I don't know where, wherever you buy books. (laughs) It's well worth it. Great book and congratulations on it. Dr. Stephanie Johnson, I really appreciate your time today. It has been a pleasure. Oh, for me too. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to our free email meditations. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox, go to perennialleader.com. Lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. And until next time, be wise and be well.